Hi, and welcome to Me, Myself, and TBI. I'm your host, Christina Brown Fisher. I am a writer, journalist, and traumatic brain injury survivor. There is little doubt concussion has become the most troubling injury in sports today. How to best detect, assess, treat, and prevent concussions are the questions concerning everyone, from parents to players, coaches, and clinicians. This episode features an eye-opening conversation with one of the world's top experts when it comes to sports-related concussion. Dr. Stephen Broglio is a professor of athletic training, neurology, and physical medicine and rehabilitation at the University of Michigan. He is the director of the Michigan Concussion Center and the Neurotrauma Research Laboratory, where he oversees clinical care, educational outreach, and multidisciplinary research focused on questions surrounding concussion prevention, identification, diagnosis, management, as well as outcomes. He is also part of an international team of researchers playing a critical role in shaping the consensus on recognizing and treating concussion in sport. Their document, the Concussion in Sport Group Consensus Statement, was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. These statements are published once every four years, and basically, they're the foundation for concussion management worldwide. This year's marks the sixth statement the group has published since 2001. Dr. Steven Berglio breaks down the team's findings and sheds light on why he believes right now, one sport in particular, football, is the safest it's ever been in the history of the game. He joined me from his office at the University of Michigan. Thank you for the invitation. I'm excited for the conversation we're going to have. I was talking to someone about how excited I was about speaking with you, trying to explain to them your role in what we know about concussions, how they're diagnosed, managed in the sports world, and not just at the professional level, but also collegiate, high school, and elementary school. Is, is that fair? That is fair. Absolutely. Okay. So in other words, you're a big deal. <laughs> I don't know about that, but um, maybe, maybe just to my mom, but that's, uh, yeah, right. that's a, another story, I think. Explain to me how the document, this framework, actually works. You are the co-author of this concussion in sport group consensus statement, and it seems as though the document serves as a sort of guidepost. Basically, it distills current scientific knowledge and research findings and helps create the standard for how athletic trainers and others who support athletes identify whether a player has suffered a concussion and then determine next steps. Yeah. So, um, so thank you for, for the kind intro and, and everything else. Um, the international document, um, which you, you correctly identified is um, something that happens about every four years. This most recent one was delayed a little bit because of COVID. So it was actually a six year interval, but it's really, um, it's, it's a, it's a labor of love from, I'm trying to remember how many people were involved. I want to say 125 or maybe 130 scientists and clinicians from around the world that, collectively work on 12 systematic reviews. Um, so pooling literature from, I think, 2002 up to, um, I think we stopped in spring of 2022. Um, and we, we look at all this literature uh, and then um, perform these 12 systematic reviews that are related to you know, injury prevention, to identification, to management, to exercise, on and on. Um, those 12 documents um, are then kind of consolidated and summarized in the consensus document, which you mentioned, um, which seems to, over the years, gained more and more um, prestige, not only in the medical field, but just sort of in the general public around kind of guidance of um, injury identification and management, um, you know, for the next four years. Um, and so that's, it's really designed for the healthcare provider. So you mentioned an athletic trainer, but it could be a physician or maybe a physio if we're overseas. Um, we do give some guidance to kind of more lay, lay individuals that are kind of around sports. So the coach, um, maybe a parent. And I, I'm distinguishing between the two because, um, you know, the, the coach and the, um, the parent typically are not medical professionals. You know, obviously in some cases they can be, but often not. Um, and, you know, kind of giving different guidance, more conservative guidance to those individuals than we can to a trained healthcare provider. 
who can really make a nuanced decision just because they have the background and the experience to be able to do so. Um, but I've been involved with the consensus process. I think this is my third one. Um, and it's, it's really just been amazing. The amount of work people put in the commitment to trying to find the right answer, um, and, um, just seeing it grow over the last 10 or 15 years has just been um, a lot of fun to, to watch and be a part of. I want to dig in a little bit more about that, but I think before we go any further, what we need to do is kind of level set. And so let's first just talk about what is concussion, because there are varying degrees of what, uh, of how concussion has been defined over the years. So let's level set and first say, okay, what is concussion? And then I'd like to talk about what is TBI and just kind of the, the spectrum there, just so that we're all on the same page. TBI is traumatic brain injury, and it occurs along a spectrum. Um, and just kind of three big buckets in that spectrum are mild, moderate, and severe. When we talk about moderate and severe TBI, typically there is some sort of structural damage that has happened to the brain, right? So we can image, we can put somebody in a CT scanner or an MRI and we can see um, a bleed or we can see um, uh, focal injuries that have occurred because of the blunt force trauma that's happened. On the mild end of the scale, um, you, you, when you put somebody in the uh, imaging device, um, at least on standard imaging, nothing shows up. The, the brain looks exactly like it should, um, perfectly healthy. We kind of colloquially refer to mild TBI as concussion, and there's a bit of debate as to like what whether concussion is its own entity, it's the mildest of the mild, or whether kind of mild TBI and concussion can go interchangeably. But I think for our conversation today, I think we can use those two interchangeably. Um, asking about the definition of, okay, so what is a concussion? Uh, the last, it's been a long time, but at, w- at one point we looked, and I think there's over 100 definitions in the medical literature for concussion. And that's over probably 100 years, right? So it's, it has changed and evolved. But I think right now what we think about as concussion is it when someone gets hit, whether it's um, a direct force to the head, so you can think of a helmet-to-helmet or head-to-head collision, um, or a um, somebody gets hit in the chest and there's kind of this whiplash mechanism, the brain shifts inside of the skull uh, and the, the tissue stretches. And because of that stretch, we get um, a shifting of the ions across the cell membrane uh, in, the, in the brain. And that causes that area of the brain to not function appropriately. Um, and so what that then presents as on a clinical level um, is that's the um, slowed reaction time or the difficulty remembering words, um, or maybe somebody complains of headache or other symptoms that are related to the injury. So the challenge is there is no gold standard to diagnose the injury. It is a clinical diagnosis. And what I mean by that is, like I said previously, you can't put somebody in a scanner and say, oh, here is the injury, like a like an x-ray for a broken bone, you can see the break. You can't do that with concussion. There is no blood test to say, oh, this marker shows up in the blood, therefore you have a concussion. So it is up to the healthcare provider to ask the questions of the athlete and say, you know, how do you feel? Do you have a headache? Do you feel fatigued? Do you feel nauseous? Um, Or do some of these tests um, that people have probably heard or seen where it's reaction time or memory or or, um, like a uh, connect the dots type of test or balance testing. Um, and then based on that information, the provider has to make a decision, yes, no, the athlete um, has a concussion or not. So it can be very challenging because symptoms don't always immediately show up. They can sometimes be delayed by 30 or 60 or you know, 30 or 60 minutes or longer. Um, or the athlete may be motivated to go back into the game and not tell you that they have any symptoms. Um, so it, it, it can be quite challenging at times, um, but that is the state of the science um, and medical care where, where we are today. And one of the things that you said that um, really stands out to me, and it's something that I often hear from people, which is, uh, you know, I had some sort of uh, head injury, head impact, went to the doctor, went to the ER, they did a CT, they did an MRI. And it came back, the phrase I often hear is unremarkable. You know, nothing showed up. And so they take that information thinking they're okay. But what you're saying is that a concussion will not show up on an MRI or a CT, correct? Absolutely. So, I mean, there are some very advanced, highly sophisticated imaging um, tests that, that we're using in the research space, but they are not 
clinically ready to go and we can see some things, but it's not consistent. And so five or 10 years from now, we may have, you know, you can put something in a scanner and you can see something, but you're absolutely correct that under today's kind of common standard imaging techniques, we cannot see it. Um, and so uh, there are certainly cases and I've heard of them where somebody goes in and exactly what you're describing, they have this image, the imaging is done and it's normal. And the physician's like, everything is good here. Um, but the patient is saying like, yeah, but I, you know, I can't sleep and I have a headache and I can't focus and all the common things that we would um, associate with concussion. As part of the concussion and sport group consensus statement, there is discussion surrounding imaging and what's actually available in clinical environments. But I want to go back a little bit and talk about just how this came to be in the first place. My understanding is that this started around 2000, 2001. Can you explain how it's evolved? I mean, we're now more than 20 years later since its initial release. We have very different standards in place now. It, it is hard to imagine going back 20, 25 years, um, concussion care at that point um, really was the wild, wild west. Like everybody, every individual provider was doing their own thing based on their experience with the injury. Um, and I mean, there was a, there was a period kind of in that area was where people thought you could only have a concussion if you mm-hmm. lost consciousness. And we, there was a great study that came out of University of Pittsburgh that showed really only 10% of concussions involve loss of consciousness. And now some of the data that we have internally is showing it's closer to 5%. Um, so, but people were really just sort of like, oh, I had this experience, so I'm going to manage it this way. And then maybe, you know, the next university over, somebody's managing it differently. And so a number of people from around the world kind of recognized that, um, you know, that there was no standard protocol and they got together, they formed the concussion and sport group. And then out of that came the first consensus statement. I think they met in the fall of 21 and it was published in the spring or summer of 22. Uh, and then in that, at the tail end of that document, they had agreed that they would meet again in four years and uh, revisit the literature and, and kind of make modifications as needed. And then the, the second meeting happened, um, or the second document was published in 06. And then obviously it kind of went on from there and there. Concussion, at the time the, the concussion sport group was founded in 01, um, really nobody, I don't want to say nobody, but very few people were paying attention to it. And it wasn't until January of 2007 when concussion and really CTE, which I'm sure we'll get into later on, hit the front page of the New York Times, and it really was kind of thrust into the public consciousness. And it it became front page news not only because of kind of the first couple of autopsy cases that were coming out of football, but we were also engaged in two wars overseas, Iraq and Afghanistan, and TBI became the signature injury of those wars. So you had this kind of general public sport interest in concussion, and then you also had military interests in concussion. And so with that came research dollars, which then allows, you know, more interest, you know, people follow dollars and researchers do the work. And then so you see this giant uptick um, really starting in 2010 because it takes time to get the dollars and do the work and publish and et cetera. But it, it really, to me, I mark January of 2007 as kind of the tipping point of the modern concussion era. And that's kind of where it began. And since then, I mean, it's hundreds of thousands of papers have been published on kind of this work and trying to understand acute effects and long-term effects and what tests do we use when and where and how, and how do we manage and how do we recover? So, um, and, and the, I think this concussion sport group has gained notoriety and recognition because it filled a void that just, there was nothing there. There was no standardized protocols. Um, and now, um, you know, pretty much every sporting organization in the world has something, um, whether it mimics the concussion sport group or not, they have something in place to, to manage the athletes that are injured. The last statement was in 2016. That one was released at the Berlin Conference. And then I mentioned this most recent one published this summer. What are the most significant changes? What was added or taken away? The single biggest addition was um, the inclusion or the recommendation for early exercise after injury. So going back so no years. more dark room. No more dark is exactly where I was going to go. So going back 10 years, it was sort of this cocoon therapy, um, rest, shut somebody down, um, put them in a dark room, no TV, no books, no cell phones, no nothing. Um, and really what we found is that that psychological 
isolation actually spins up all sorts of symptoms that are unrelated to the injury. So then as concussion symptoms are resolving over you know, the initial days of injury, these psychological symptoms are spinning up and then disentangling the two becomes very complex. Can you explain that difference? Because there is overlap between like the TBI injury and the psychological injury. Maybe depression, anxiety is a, is a super easy one that people can relate to. Um, it is clear that some people after concussion experience a bout of depression and maybe some anxiety right. because you know they're injured. They don't, they don't know kind of what the outcome is going to be. They may be a highly anxious person to start with. And so the injury can kind of increase some of those symptoms. Um, and those do typically resolve, you know, in the week, week or weeks after injury. But then if you take somebody and you isolate them from the rest of the world, social isolation, you know, we are humans as, you know, as animals, basically, like we are social creatures. And if you remove that from them, some of these, that isolation can increase symptoms. So as the body is healing from injury, um, and the depression, anxiety are in theory going down, they may be going back up because they're not interacting with their friends, their peers, particularly a, a high school or a college student. That that social aspect is quite important at that stage in life. So these things can go up. Um, athletes that don't exercise actually start to feel worse um, because they're just used to exercising a lot. Uh, and that may you know increase fatigue or just general kind of lackadaisical emotions. Um, and so those things go up because they're not engaged in their their daily routines. Um, so now the new the new guidelines, the ones that came out earlier this year, it is you know, not shut somebody down, but reduce their activity for the first 24 to 48 hours. So whatever it is that they're doing, so long as it doesn't increase symptoms, right? So you can do you know you can leave your room, you can make you know breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you can do some chores around the house, so long as it's not making symptoms worse. Um, and then after that, we're recommending some light exercise to start re-engaging with, with the things that, the, that you normally do. So that may be go – and when I say light exercise, that's not, you know, go for a 5K run. Uh, if you're a cross-country runner, that's like go for a walk <laughs> or maybe sit on a stationary, stationary bike and just be very easy, um, turn the pedals over type of thing. Okay. And then as you feel better, you can increase the intensity and the duration of that. And really – using exercise as a form of medicine to help the recovery process. Um, and then as, you know, as symptoms resolve and you're cleared by your healthcare provider, you can start re-engaging in, in your sport. Uh, and that's going to look different for every athlete and every sport. So re-engaging in your sport as a football athlete is a much more conservative process than re-engaging in your sport as a golfer. Um, so, you know, that there's still a lot of, um, individual tailoring that has to happen with the athlete. Um, but it is, um, I don't want to call it more aggressive, but we're definitely not as conservative as we have been in the past. And is there a distinction in these protocols in terms of whether or not you are playing at the professional level, the collegiate level, high school and elementary school? Yeah, that's. A, I'm glad you said that. So some of the older documents um, made the distinguish that made the distinguish between the professional athlete or the elite athlete and then kind of the amateur athlete, and that's no longer the case. This is the it's the same protocol for everybody, which I I think is absolutely the right thing to do, and I think the the scientific literature supports that approach. Okay, so that right there is kind of mind boggling for me because that is not something that. I would have thought, and, and I know you and I have talked about a little bit about the difference between the public perception surrounding concussion and diagnosis, recovery approach versus what the science says, what the data says. And you're saying that the science says that the protocols should be the same, whether you're operating at the elite athlete level, amateur, and children. Yeah, I mean, you're, you may end up being a little more conservative. The, the healthcare provider may be a little more conservative with, let's say, a child or a high school athlete, um, just kind of based on circumstances. There's some informed decision making going on. Um, you know, careers aren't on the line. Um, but in general, the protocols are are all the same at this point. And then, at least in the document, there is no longer a distinction between uh, some of the. I think one of the older documents said, you know. It, there's more resources at the elite and professional level and you can manage them differently or something like that. Um, and that, that has been removed. Um, so the protocols are all largely the same. Um, how people move through those protocols is probably going to vary a little bit. 
Um, because it, we do have data to say that children and high school athletes take longer to recover than the professional athletes. That doesn't mean they're being managed differently. It's just that they're moving through the protocol at a faster pace. I see. And what about uh, re- recovery time and in de- defining what is considered normal recovery? I-, I feel like you hear different things depending on with whom you're speaking. How does this statement address that? Yeah, this was actually um, a key point that I was I honed in on while we were at the meeting, and I was I was pretty aggressive in getting it added to the document. I'm I'm glad it made it in the final version. Um, so historically, we define concussion recovery as um, normal concussion recovery within two weeks, 14 days. And what has sort of happened with that is um, as the athlete gets into day 15, 16, 17, they start getting labeled as like an abnormal recovery or poor recovery or it's a bad injury. Um, and then so this is, again, kind of where the psychology of the injury can um, start playing a role is, you know, that that athlete is like, oh, some athletes, I shouldn't say all of them, but some athletes are like, oh, it's hopeless. I have a bad injury. I'm going to be out, you know, forever or whatever. Um, but if you go back and look at the scientific literature, um, that 14-day recovery is the average recovery time. So that's 50% of people recover in 14 days. That means another 50% are going to go longer than, than 14 days. So I was very adamant about we need to extend what we call normal recovery as up to one month. And um, the data we have, it's something like 90 or 95% of people recover within a one-month interval. Um, and so it, it's certainly half of people will recover by 14 days, um, but just because somebody takes three weeks or four weeks, it doesn't mean it's an abnormal or a prolonged recovery. They just needed more time. So it's some of the phrasing around the injury, I think, that is um, pretty important for people to realize that hey, I'm at day 21, that's okay. It's just taking me a little bit longer. Um, and, and the way, you know, one of the analogies I give to people is, you know, if you have a cold, you know, average recovery from a cold is seven days. But if somebody took 10 days, you wouldn't be like, oh, that was a really bad cold. That's an abnormal recovery. We're just like they had a bad cold and it took them three more days. Um, so th- I'm glad that that language is in there. Um, and there's additional language in there about um, getting additional resources if people are not recovering at the rate that we think they should. Um, whether that's um, some vestibular rehab or cervical spinal rehab, whatever the case may be. It's all obviously very dependent on the individual. And when you talk about normal recovery, as an example, are you saying that this is for someone who has uh, sustained and been diagnosed with one concussion? Um, Or is there a distinction between, say, someone who has had one diagnosed concussion versus, say, someone who has had repeated uh, head impacts that haven't necessarily uh, resulted in a concussion diagnosis. So I'm just trying to figure out the, the distinction here in terms of what is considered the normal recovery time. Uh, so yeah, it's somebody with a diagnosed concussion. Um, I don't I don't know if anybody that has scientific like specifically looked at. Um, I'll just take a football player that's had a lot of. Um, head impacts without concussion and then has their first injury and whether or not that recovery period is longer than let's say a swimmer that they are now getting their very first concussion, but have never been hit in the head otherwise. Um, What I can tell you is when we look across um, all NCAA sports, our football athletes are actually recovering. um, They kind of have like a, an average recovery time of around two weeks and there's about 50% of the sports that are faster recovery times and 50% of the sports that are longer recovery times. And they don't, that kind of time scale does not seem to break out um, around contact and non-contact sports, which I'm using as kind of a, a little bit of a marker for like repeated head impact exposure. Um, so my, I don't have data to support this, but my gut tells me that head impacts without concussion are not influencing concussion recovery time. I see. And then what comes out of this statement with regards to the suggestions around preventing injuries? I think we can all be realistic about the fact that it's likely impossible to prevent concussion in sport. But what are some of the the guidelines that you and the team are suggesting around preventing the injuries? Yeah, so I'm glad you raised the issue. We will never get to a point where all concussions are eliminated in all sports. Um, I I think we can continually 
improve to reduce risk um, and some sports will carry a higher risk than others and you know we talk about football a lot but ice hockey women's soccer men's soccer um, men's lacrosse in particular the, the, these are just higher risk sports for concussion um, I think around the prevention space um, new to this document that um, just because there is new data to support this is the use of mouth guards to reduce um, concussion risk mm. um, which up till this point had not been supported by the literature. So that was a, a bit of a change that we had not seen in the past. Now in a sport like football, you have to wear a mouth guard, ice hockey, you have to wear a mouth guard, but there are other sports where you don't, or maybe, you know, some people will want to consider that. So mouth guards, that seems like a very simple fix. Mouth guards. I, I agree. And it, and I can't, I, even in my head, I don't quite understand kind of biomechanically like how this would work. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, sometimes the data shows something that you don't expect and, um, you know, you go in a direction, you, you, have, you have to follow the data. So um, I think the other, there's some really nice work um, out of Carolyn Emery's group at the University of Calgary. She has done 10 years worth of work at looking at um, checking in ice hockey. And I don't think this comes as a surprise, but if you eliminate checking from ice hockey, then concussion risk plummets. It, I'm not going to say it goes to zero because there's incidental things that happen, but um, the, the risk for injury goes really low. And then when you, if you do that at the youth level and then introduce it later on, there's actually no increased risk for concussion for people that hadn't checked when they were younger. So she's done a really nice series of, of papers on this. That, um, so that's one thing that we can think about is um, maybe eliminating some, some contact while um, children or people are learning to play the game and you can teach fundamentals and skills and then introduce the contact portion later on. Um, and then there was some some language around um, some warm-up procedures. Uh, that was a, a smaller study done in um, I think a rugby cohort. I think that one, in my mind, needs a little bit of more a little bit more investigation before I would wholesale implement it as a concussion prevention tool. But I don't think it's going to hurt anything if people are doing it now. Um, so those were those are some of the big ones. Um, but I think it's um, you know, we're trending in the right direction, um, better equipment, you know, helmets have improved dramatically over the last 15 years. Um, and those things will continue to evolve and get better. Um, and, and we'll just kind of keep chipping away at the problem as we go. You mentioned uh, rugby. Is it, are you talking about reducing contact practice? The Ivy League eliminated contact practices, I think, maybe seven or eight years ago. Um, and I don't have data on whether or not their concussion rates have dropped. But what I can tell you is about half of all concussions happen uh, in football, half of all concussions happen during practices. So uh, if you um, if you're if you're not hitting each other, if you're not hitting your teammates during the week, uh, then you're less likely to have injuries. And then you, you, know, you can actually field a better team on the weekend and increase your odds of winning. So um, there's some work that we've done, uh, myself and some colleagues have done around preseason football. Um, and when you reduce the number of, uh, of contact practices, then the number of concussions go down. Um, so I think there's this, um, you know, you have to hit a little bit because you have to, you know, learn how to tackle and tackle appropriately. Um, but it, I think the idea of um, some of these drills of um, like Oklahoma drill and bull in the ring. I was just thinking the Oklahoma drill. I was actually just going yeah, to ask those, you that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think two years ago was the first time the Oklahoma drill was not done at Oklahoma. The Oklahoma drill originated in the 1940s with the college football team, the Oklahoma Sooners. It is a contact drill, pinning an offensive player directly against a defensive player. Basically, the offensive player is trying to get past the defensive player while the defensive player tries to stop them with a tackle. It is, you know, eliminating like just blatant hitting for no real reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of coaches are moving into that space because they know that it's they're injuring, you know, their own team and um, then those guys can't play on the weekend. The priority for coaches is to win. How does the concussion in sport group consensus statement help athletic trainers make a case to coaches and managers that may result in ultimately pulling a top player out of the lineup? Yeah, I think um, you're raising a good point. I think, you know, when I started with this, um, you know, some, some coaches, I don't want to say all, but some coaches were very apprehensive about, you know, you just want to take my players off the field and hold them and, 
and that sort of thing. And I think um, I'll go back to we were talking about exercise as a as a treatment. Those protocols actually allow um, the recovery path, uh, process to it's a little bit faster. Mm. People that exercise early actually have a little bit quicker recovery periods um, than those that don't. Um, and so I think a document like this gives some power to the athletic trainer to implement those things in the clinical space then to get players back on the field when injuries do happen. I think the other thing this document does, thinking you know talking about prevention, um, is it allows them then to say, hey, maybe we should think about, you know, if they're not football, but a sport that doesn't have mouth guards, maybe we think about mouth guards for our athletes. Maybe we think about reducing the number of contact practices so we're not injuring our own teammates and then we can, you know, field a better team, you know, tomorrow or the next day or whatever. Mm. Um, so it gives them some power. I think what I would, I would tell the athletic trainer is, you know, if you have data drives everything, if you can go to your coach and say like, hey, coach, you know, the bulk of our concussions in practice are happening when we do drill X. Maybe we need to take a look at drill X and adjust accordingly. Um, and so that takes a little bit of more, more work from the athletic trainers um, on a prevention side, um, but it's going to save them a lot of work on an identification and management side, you know, because you're stopping injuries from happening. A parent or grandparent, for example, has a youngster in sports. Pediatric athletes are going to be less likely to have the trained medical personnel, the athletic trainer, available on the sideline. What advice do you give them, the caregivers, about the concerns that they may have about concussion and the conversations that they should potentially be having with coaches? Yeah, I think at the at the pediatric level, um, you know, the, the parents, the grandparents, or, you know, they, they know their child. And so um, if, they, if they feel that, you know, my kid or my grandkid came back from practice and they're just acting funny, you know, there's no harm in taking them into whether it's the pediatrician or um, if there's a specialty clinic in their area and, and having them checked out. I think that's totally appropriate. Um, I think, I think even before that happens, I would, I would tell the parent um, they need to figure out if that sport that the child wants to play is appropriate for the child. And I'll give the example of my nephew um, when he was, uh, I think, 13 or 14 years old, he wanted to play football. And my sister-in-law was like, what do you think? And I said, to be quite honest, I don't think he should do it because he's like four foot eight and 95 pounds. He's just going to get hurt and not even concussion, but just orthopedic injury. I mean, he was very tiny for his age. Um, so that's one thing that they need to, to that I would tell parents to, to think about. Um, and then if they're, if the child wants to play a contact and collision sport is how does the coach teach the sport? Hmm. Um, and the example I've used publicly in the past is we were working with a high school at one point and they went through the first two or three days of um, preseason practice, which were kind of heat acclimatization days. And then on the first day they were allowed to hit by state regulations. Um, the coach literally says, line up from the man across from you on the whistle, hit them. And I, I turned to the student that was with me. I was like, what age were these? What age were this these was, kids? This was high school. Okay. I and I, I turned to the student. I said, dial nine one and get ready. Mm -hmm. um, and thankfully nothing happened. Um, but that's an example where just they, you know, you have to teach to tackle. That's fine. But you need to do that appropriately. And there was, there was no instruction given. So, I would have a, as a parent, I would have a conversation with the coach of, you know, how do you do this? Like, what is your training in this? How, how are you going to teach my child? How are you going to teach them safely to do this? And if as a parent, you get that pit in your stomach, it, it may not be the right sport for your kid. Um, and you might need to hold on that a little bit. So we're, we're talking about football and we're talking about youth football. Player safety in football obviously has been a topic of debate for years. High school participation, though, in the 11-player tackle football was trending upward in the 21st century until the 2009-2010 academic year. That's when we see enrollment begin to wane. According to data from the National Federation of State High School Associations High School Athletics Participation Survey, the latest survey release, uh, the first since 2018-2019, shows that the 2021-2022 school year 
was the first on record with fewer than a million players participating in the 11-player high school football uh, in America since the turn of the century. How much of that, uh, Dr. Broglio, do you believe is connected to, as we discussed earlier, the widely known narrative or accepted narrative that football is dangerous? It's, you know, it's a threat. It's a public health threat, if you will. Is there a disconnect between what people uh, think, believe about football and then what the, the data is actually showing about football? Now is probably the safest time to play football in the era, in all the time that there, that football has existed. Certainly there is risk to playing, um, there's risk to playing every sport uh, and football has a very high concussion rate. You said now is the safest time to play football in the history of in, the sport. In okay. the history of the that, sport, that's, yeah. That's big. And, and I would say that because medical care is a lot better, um, our awareness around concussion is a lot better, um, equipment is a lot better. Um, and so, uh, you know, all of these things are, you know, we are in a better spot today than we were yesterday. Um, and, you know, football, if you go back to the beginning of American football, the early 1900s, the, the sport was on the verge of being banned because of deaths on the field at the college level, like literal deaths on the field um, from severe TBI and brain bleeds. And uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt basically called the college presidents together and said, fix it or I'm banning it. And there were some rule changes and some other things that came into place after that. So we're a long way from that, thankfully. Um, And that's not to say that we are done. I think, you know, there's a lot of people around the world that are trying to understand concussion and other injuries related to sport and and how to eliminate and um, or at least reduce and then manage when they do happen. Um, But um, I I do think this is probably the one of the better times to be playing it if that's the sport you choose to play. Uh, We've briefly touched on CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Let's first talk about what that is. And I keep coming back to this narrative, right? Because I, and I've read just in statements that I've seen uh, from you in different reports in which you've said, you know, I think that the media has, you know, basically gotten it wrong, right? In terms of how uh, football, CTE, concussion, danger. So I I really want to dig into that. First, let's talk about what CTE is and why we see it um, associated with football athletes and um, what in your mind is is wrong in the discussion around so i'll start off with what it is so cte as you said is chronic traumatic encephalopathy Um, it has been in the medical literature since i think the 1940s but it was first identified in a modern football player in 2005 i think most people it's Mike Webster. Bennett Amala was the pathologist in Pittsburgh. Um, the Will Smith movie that, that um, was based on that story um, a few years ago. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so what, it, what the disease is, we all have tau proteins in our brain. It's a naturally occurring uh, protein. It's a support structure kind of to the neurons that are in our brain. And what we believe happens is when the brain is hit, and we talked about this stretching, is this tau kind of breaks loose. Uh, and then it clumps uh, at at various points in the brain, kind of within the folds of our brain. Um, It's not clear if that clumping is the problem or the clumping is a marker of other damage that has happened, and that's a little bit of a nuanced response, but um, that's kind of what it is. It has been tied to um, a number of things uh, that – Nobody really knows, to be quite honest. And I think this is where my views and the my current views, my past views, um, that I think it, it's really been oversimplified. Um, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not denying that it exists. It's CTE is definitely a thing. But I think the idea of saying, you know, here is this one brown spot in your brain. You now are destined for, like, clinical depression and suicidality and irrational behavior. And I, that link has not been made yet in the, in the literature. Um, but what, what it does appear is that, you know, there is, there's probably a tipping point where if you have enough of this, whether it's the tau itself or, you know, the, the mark, mark, the tau is just the marker that you're probably going to have some sort of problems. So let me, let me kind of give some explanation to this. Mm-hmm. There is no way in my mind that if you had one concussion, 
um, that you're going to be destined to have these problems. Because if that were the case, then we as a human species never would have survived. It just wouldn't happen. That being said, I'm not recommending you go get a concussion. Um, and what, what we sort of think, or at least the way I think about it is, um, as we get older, we're all going to decline, right? We've seen this in our parents. We see it in our grandparents. And it's, it's a sad thing that happens, but it just it happens. It's just life. And these repeated head impacts or maybe repeated head impacts in combination with concussion accelerate that decline. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, I played a season of football as, as a high school student and now at 55, I'm going to have dementia. It, everybody's curve is going to be a little bit different. Uh, and probably the more you play, the more likely it is that that curve is going to get steeper in the downward direction. Um, what the literature is showing is that if you played high school football, you, you probably are not going to see, there's a, it's very unlikely you're going to have any long-term effects. It, there are, are a percentage of former professional athletes that have problems, um, but not all of them. So this idea of hundred percent of NFL athletes have CT is there's, it's highly unlikely. Um, and then if you're kind of in the middle, you're at the kind of college level, uh, it's a little bit up in the air. Um, and so the best analogy I can give is, um, is probably smoking where, you know, if you're trying to be the cool kid in high school and you put, and you smoked a couple packs of cigarettes, probably not going to worry about lung cancer in 30 or 40 years. If you're a lifelong smoker, two, three, four packs a day for 30 years, your odds of cancer are going up, but the odds of lung cancer in lifelong smokers is only like 25 or 30 percent. So even the people on the most extremes, it's not a guarantee that you're going to have a bad outcome. Again, I'm not recommending any of this. I'm just saying if we look at the data, it is not as simple as I played football in high school, therefore I have this problem. And that's what I mean by I think it's oversimplified is I think the media has largely portrayed it as like, if you play football, you're in trouble. And that is clearly not the case because there are far too many former high school, college, and professional athletes that are doing just fine in life. Um, and they have no symptoms of anything other than just, you know, they're 90 years old and they are, they're old, to be quite honest. Do you think that this perception, right, and for a lot of people, perception is reality. Do you think that this perception is drawn just largely from the fact that football is just such a popular sport when you have other sports that, like you're saying, are potentially just as dangerous, yet football seems to be the one that gets the attention? Yeah, I'm, I, I'm getting the feeling that you, like, live inside of my brain. So um, <laughs> these are – you're absolutely correct. So, you know, I'll, I'll liken this to, um, like, the fast food industry. Um, you know, fast food tastes good. We know we probably shouldn't eat it. Um, and McDonald's gets all the, all the flack because they're the biggest and the baddest, right? Wendy's and Arby's and all those other places aren't getting the attention just because they're smaller. Um, and you're exactly right about football. It, in my mind, at least it is, it's the biggest kid on the block and everybody's going after it, but you know, ice hockey and soccer and a number of other sports have, um, similar concussion rates, maybe a little bit less of head impact exposure, but they are also, you know, everybody who plays a sport is at risk for concussion. It's just reality. Even the swimmers, right? Even the track athletes, um, cause accidents happen. Um, but football gets the most, in my mind, they get the most attention because they're the biggest kid on the block. I will also say that football and in particular NFL, uh, they had a pretty dark period from, uh, I would say like early 2000s up until maybe five or six years ago where they largely just denied concussion and any sort of problems with it. However, I honestly believe that um, since they admitted the potential link between concussion and CTE, they've probably done more than any other sport to try to reverse it. And they have, they have a standardized protocol now. Um, they have, they were the first to put a spotter in the box, um, to try to stop the game. Officials can stop the game for, um, for potential injuries. Um, the blue tint, there are a number of things that they have done, uh, to try to advance medical care in this space that other sports are sort of, you know, maybe not as uh, aggressive with. 
I want to talk about what are the big offenders? Number one risk of concussion. I know rugby was number one, and then it was football, and then I think it was women's ice hockey after that. I can tell you broadly, um, ice hockey, uh, men's and women's ice hockey, lacrosse, soccer, wrestling, those are kind of the big offenders, if you will. Um, and I think it's important as we talk about um, football, people, participation in football is going down. And some of the narrative that we hear is I'm taking my kid out of the football. It's too dangerous, but I'm going to put them into soccer. I'm like concussion risk in soccer is not much lower than football. And, and not that I'm advocating they don't play soccer. I absolutely think every kid should play a sport. Um, but just sort of, you know, do your, do your homework. If you're doing it just because of concussion risk, then just make sure you understand kind of what you're walking into. Can you, Dr. Rolio, talk about the distinction between concussions between uh, men and women, boys and girls um, at the athletic level? I, I know that in, in some of your reports you've talked about um, women being more susceptible for additional concussions once they've suffered one in particular. Can you explain So um, if we look at sex-comparable sports, um, and soccer is an easy one, it's the male game and the female game is virtually identical. We do see higher concussion rates in women than we do in men, right? So soccer, um, softball, baseball, um, sports of that nature. And we don't entirely know why that is. Um, I can kind of give you some theory here. So some is um, women have um, smaller neck musculature relative to head mass. So when they get hit, uh, they're not able to stabilize the head quite as well as, as men can. Um, women, um, there's some theory that at various points in the menstrual cycle, women are more susceptible to injury where men don't have the same hormonal fluctuations. Um, the one to me that I think probably is the standout is I think women, if you look across all medical literature, women are more likely to tell someone that they're injured, um, because they're more concerned about their long-term health than men. So they're going to report they're, they're exactly. not going to mask their injuries. Exactly. So, you know, the, the 16, 17, 18 year old boy that's, you know, trying to be macho and suck it up and get out there. And, you know, I'm, I don't want to let my teammates down. Um, and I'm not saying women aren't tough. Like I've been in, around enough high level female athletes that it's incredible what they can do. Um, but they are historically or on a, on a broad scale, they are, um, they're more likely to report an injury than, than a man is. So it, it, it I doubt it's one of those three things I just said, it's probably a combination of all three. Um, but what we do see or where the literature is, is pointing us now is that the recovery rates between men and women are nearly identical, um, maybe a day or two difference, but not enough that would really shift how we manage the female, the injured female athlete relative to the male athlete. When you talk about the recovery rates being identical between male and female, are you talking about short term? You're talking about that 28 day period now, or are we talking three, five 10 years after. uh in, in the short term so the time from injury until we can um, get them asymptomatic and then get them back on the field so in that kind of 14 to 28 day window what kind of distinctions are you seeing in terms of long-term recovery or long-term yeah, impact great, yeah great question don't have the answer to that one i've been involved i've uh, been the, the co-lead on a, a project called the care consortium for the last almost 10 years now um with a co couple other colleagues across the country where we enrolled uh, 55,000 varsity athletes and military service academy members um, while they're in college, typically as they were entering their institutions, track them through college, and then now we're in the first phase of tracking them after graduation. Um, so it's up to 10 years after graduation is the point. So the idea being is, you know, we know what you look like when you uh, were a first-year student at your institution, and we wanted to track you, you know, for the next 40 or 50 years. Um, so we just started this kind of first post-graduation phase two years ago. So we have data, but we haven't really looked at it yet in a way that I can give you any sort of useful information. Um, but we are we are looking down the line and, and tracking these individuals for a number of years to really drill down into the question that you're asking, amongst other things, of course. What do we know about the subtle years-long effects of repeated head impact? What's readily available now in terms um, of what the data Yeah, reveals. I think, you know, it is, it's clear that some people have problems, and, um, but it is not clear 
um, why some people have problems and why other people don't. And I think that's part of the narrative that's kind of been really blurred. Um, you know, the, I, the narrative is largely, if you played a contact collision sport, if you had a concussion, you're going to have problems. And it's just clear that that's not the case, but we don't understand why, you know, conceivably, you know, two players from the same, that played the same position for the same number of years with the same number of everything else. And one has a problem and one doesn't. And that's the thing that we're trying to understand. Um, so I, I think what I would, it's going to take time, right? I mean, we, the people we're tracking, you know, are 30 ish years old, uh, and to track them until they're 50 or 60 years old is it's going to take a long time. Now we're going to answer questions along the way, of course, but I don't think we're going to have a definitive answer for some time. Um, I think what is encouraging is some of the work being done to be able to diagnose some of these like CTE and some of these other things in the living. And as soon as we can do that, then we can start developing treatments. Right. Because CTE is diagnosed post-mortem. Exactly. Exactly. So, but what I can tell you is, you know, whether you're an athlete or not, um, things like depression and anxiety and, and, you know, some of these other things are very treatable. Um, and so if you're a former athlete and you think, you know, you have CTE uh, and you're depressed and irritable and all those other things, I would really encourage you to go to your primary care and talk to them about it and, and, and start addressing some treatments because, you know, depression, uh, you know, with some cognitive behavioral therapy and maybe some medication is, is very treatable um, and it can be managed um, very well. I want to talk a little bit about technology in, in terms of what is out there and, and what's available. We, we've talked a bit about helmets. I know from your research, I know from other research, not all helmets are created equal. So can you talk to me about what technology is out there that can help us better identify and figure out the tools that are going to also assist in, in preventing uh, injury? So I think um, just on helmets specifically, um, I would direct people um, to the Virginia Tech star rating system. And if you just Google Virginia Tech star, um, it should show up top of the list. And they, I think starting around 2008, um, started basically doing impact testing on uh, football helmets first. And they've gone out to another, a number of other sports and, and rating them relative to their ability to um, reduce concussion risk. And I think what, what people um, need to realize is up until that point, helmets were designed to prevent moderate and severe brain injury. They were, they were designed to prevent skull fracture. They were designed to prevent um, severe brain bleeds, and they were really good at it. That's a very important distinction because at the beginning of this, we talked about there's a spectrum when it comes to traumatic brain injury. There's mild, there's moderate, there's severe traumatic brain injury. I cannot just emphasize that enough. So you're saying that the helmets that are out there are really focused on moderate to severe. So, so the, the technology isn't designed to prevent. Well, the helmet up until about 2008 was designed okay. specifically for that. And then when this team came out with this rating system that was specific to concussion, uh, then the manufacturers started to shift started to iterate and improve design and, and that because everybody wants the five-star rating. Everybody wants to be the top of the list. And this is public, this is publicly available data. Like anybody can, can go to their website and pull it down. It's a very easy system to understand. It's, it's five stars, just like car crash, five stars. Um, and you I'll make that see, available in the show notes. Yeah. And you can see as a parent, you can go in and you're like, Oh, this helmet is the highest rating. And, you know, maybe you can ask your school to buy it for your kid, or if you have the resources personally, you can buy it. Um, the other thing I would tell you is, um, I, you know, you can get a very good helmet and it doesn't have to, you don't have to drop $300 on it. Like some very good helmets that are, you know, that are cheaper than that. Um, but because of that rating system, you know, helmet companies have started to iterate on this and the, the technology has gotten be better. And there's data to back up that concussion risk is reduced with kind of these modern helmets versus some of the older helmets that, you know, from 15 or 20 years ago. Um, and, and now we're even seeing position-specific helmets are coming out. I think I saw something Aaron Rodgers is wearing a quarterback-specific helmet, and that's based on some sensor data showing kind of where 
various players on the field get hit in the head and then they like, add or they'll make adjustments to the helmet uh, accordingly. So we're starting to see this kind of more individualized um, approach to the helmet design. And then there's other sports that have been evaluated as well. I think they've done baseball and ice hockey. Um, equestrian, I know, was a big one they just released, I think, earlier this year. So it's not just a football uh, rating system. They've done a number of different sports. And, of course, we're obviously talking about helmeted sports only, but we did discuss earlier that there are other recommendations and suggestions, for example, using the mouth guard. Um, what about soccer? Soccer's a great one. So... Uh, there are some companies that make um, some headbands or maybe some full head um, kind of padding systems, but I have not seen any data from soccer, at least none that I'm aware of, mm-hmm. that suggests that they help reduce um, concussion risk. So I don't, I don't think it's going to hurt somebody to wear them, but I'm not convinced yet that it um, is going to do anything to help either. When it comes to soccer, is the concussion risk primarily from heading the ball or is it from some other impact on the field? Yeah, great question. So uh, I think it's about 90 or 95 percent of concussions in soccer come from head-to-head contact. So it's two athletes going up for the same ball and, and, and they collide. And then we see, you know, there, there is a small percentage of concussions that happen from, um, you know, somebody's trying to head a, a ball that the goalkeeper kicked, you know, and it's coming from an odd angle really high. Uh, and they just hit it kind of awkwardly and they have an injury. Um, we see injuries from uh, contact with a goalpost or some other piece of equipment. So those things happen, um, but the bulk of it is this head-to-head contact from two athletes going together at the same time. Does an athlete have to have a concussion in order for there to be changes in brain function? There was some data done out of Purdue uh, where they uh, looked at high school football players. Uh, they had equipped them with some head impact sensors and then they did imaging, uh, fMRI imaging, which is functional magnetic resonance imaging, which sort of looks like how the brain is processing information. And they actually, they reported um, changes in, in this kind of brain functioning across the season with no reported concussion, um, which is sort of a kind of eyebrow raising finding. Um, there was a similar study done at Dartmouth and ice hockey players, and they found similar things um, during the season but everybody had kind of gone back to kind of this normal or, or pre-season um, level of functioning the, the next year. So we're not really sure what to make of this. Um, you know, the brain is highly plastic, meaning it can morph and change over time. And when you're talking about high school kids, there's all sorts of brain, just normal growth that happens. Um, so we're just not quite sure if, if this is an early marker of things to come um, or if it's just part of you know, regular brain growth and just things that happen over time. So we've done work um, here at the University of Michigan Concussion Center where we looked at high school football players. We did clinical testing before, during, and after the season, and we didn't see any changes kind of on a clinical level. But these other studies that I mentioned, they're looking at kind of brain function on a kind of subclinical level, if you will. Um, so there might, you know, we're, we're kind of measuring two different things. Um, but I think what I would say is, um, you know, a subclinical finding may mean nothing, uh, and it, it may have may be of no concern at all. Millions of American kids are suiting up to play contact sports right now. At least two million of them are playing tackle football, despite calls by some to ban the sport. We we have a very clear understanding of the benefits to uh, physical activity and sport participation, and that's you know the the physical side of that. It is the confidence building. Um, there's a very clear link between physical activity and um, positive brain function, um, people doing better in school, physically active. Um, all of that is very clear in the medical literature. Um, but there's also risk that comes with sport participation. Um, in my mind, in broad strokes, the benefits of sport outweigh the risks, but that's an individual it's an individual choice by parents and kids and the sport that they're choosing to play. Um, so I, I absolutely disagree with comments about we need to ban sp- certain sports and this, that, and the other. Um, but what I do think we need to do is take a hard look at how some of these sports are played and make adjustments where we can. No sport is the same today as it was 100 years ago. Like all sport evolves kind of with the times and with our understanding. 
and I think sport will continue to evolve to be health uh, to keep our athletes and um, health and safety in mind. My guest, Dr. Stephen Broglio, athletic trainer and neuroscientist from the University of Michigan. He is one of the nation's leading experts on sports-related concussion and director of the Michigan Concussion Center and the Neurotrauma Research Laboratory. To check out the work Broglio and his team are doing, please follow them at X, the site formerly known as Twitter, at UMich Concussion. That's U-M-I-C-H Concussion. Thank you for listening to Me, Myself, and TBI. I'm your host, Christina Brown Fisher.